0: Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today, we're dedicating our entire show to the art of telling stories out loud in front of audiences. We'll hear five time champion of the West Virginia Liars Contest, Bill Lepp.
1: And he landed in the center of a triangle of skunks. And with all the innocence of a drunk, he looked down and he
0: said, ah, Kitty cats. We'll learn how musicians Anna and Elizabeth first met and began performing their harmonies, including something known as a cranky.
2: As you tell this story or as you sing the ballad, you can slowly crank the scroll so you see one little piece of the scroll at a time. And so I showed Elizabeth and she was she freaked out. The way <laughs> I it's really kind of out. the same way that I'd freaked out about her singing.
0: Anne will travel to the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee to hear a man reminisce about his dear Aunt Eloise.
3: And she said, well, this isn't my house. I said, this isn't your house. She said, no, honey, she pointed off to the left and said, I live way over there. And I thought, well, for 97, she wasn't but one house off, you know.
0: You'll hear these stories and more this week Inside Appalachia.
2: Roxy Todd here, producer of Inside Appalachia. I have a favor. Here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, we normally hold a spring fun drive on the air. But because of the COVID outbreak, we are canceling our pledge drive to protect the safety of me and my coworkers. But there's some good news. A donor has stepped up And offered to create a matching fund of $50,000. So if you become a sustaining member or if you upgrade your membership to $10 a month, they will pay $125. How cool is that? Help keep Inside Appalachia on the air. Go to WVPublic.org or call 1 800 Radio 87. It's the power of community. And thank you.
0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. Today, we're devoting our show to storytellers, beginning with two young musicians who tell stories through song, and something known as a cranky. Crankies are these really cool cloth and cut paper scrolls. They're an old-fashioned way to tell stories, and you can pair them with music. Think a small, tiny theater with someone turning a crank to show pictures. Musicians Anna Roberts-Javalt and Elizabeth Laparel use crankies to help tell Appalachian ballads. I remember seeing them at the Ferrum Folklife Festival in southwestern Virginia, and I remember how the crankies let me follow the story, while their harmonies raised goosebumps on my arm. Oh, sleepy little
4: baby when you wake Get some cake and ride them pretty little horses
0: And they also helped me to learn the ballad which later I sang to my infant son. Hannah grew up in New England, and Elizabeth grew up in Virginia, and that's where they first met. They described how they became friends and began harmonizing in an interview that was recorded back in 2013.
4: Wouldn't mind working from sun
2: My name is Anna Roberts-Javalt. I'm 25 years old. I live in Blacksburg, Virginia, and I am a fiddler, a banjo player, and a storyteller. I'm Elizabeth LaPrelle. I'm 25, and I sing ballads. I was producing this project, this compilation album of all young, old-time musicians, and we we had heard of Elizabeth. You friended (laughs) me on Facebook. (laughs) And... uh, It turned out we were both in town that night, and there was a concert. So she came out to the show. We met. Then her car wouldn't start. There's something wrong with the
5: ignition. Yeah, the ignition eventually, well, it had to be replaced, and that took, like, 24 hours. And she said, oh, you could please come stay at my house. That's where the band is staying from tonight. And so I went to her house, and we spent 24 hours, like, singing shape note songs and She showed me this amazing thing that she had made in college called a cranky. (laughs) A
2: cranky is an illustrated scroll, and the illustrations, some of them are on these long quilted strips of canvas, and some of them are on these long rolls of uh, parchment paper. And then you take the scroll and the illustrations and you put it in this frame and which allows you this box. so as you tell the story or as you sing the ballad, you can slowly crank the scroll so you see one little piece of the scroll at a time. And so I showed Elizabeth and she was she freaked out the way I really kind of out. the same way that I'd freaked out about her singing. So uh, that was the, the first 24 hours we spent together. I'm not in
4: your town to stay said a lady old and gray to a warden in a penitentiary I'm not in your town to stay and I'll soon be on my way I'm just here to get my baby out of jail Oh, warden I'm just
5: here Ballots are They're all story songs, and um, and a lot of ballad singers they talk about being able to see the ballad happen in their mind. You know, I'm sure it depends on your imagination, but I see all the characters, and I like I costume them, and there's you know (laughs) there's a setting with its own quality of light, and I you know imagine these places and these people and events, and so. I had been really interested in kind of telling people about how visual these stories are. First we do a lot of sketching, no matter what the cranky is, and then uh we so we make a, you know, small little storyboard of a long piece of, you know, tiny paper that's just a couple inches high and sketch on that and Uh, Then we dump out everything and (laughs) do do a a few days of just cutting out all the pieces and, like, pinning them down and and arranging them. And then we go off to sew them on separately on our own sewing machines. I guess it
2: takes a couple of months. We really had, like, no foresight beyond the next couple of months. We were like, we're going to make these crankies and we're going to do this tour just in southwest virginia which is what we did but somehow word got out (laughs) and we got these offers are people who are interested around you know america
4: when i was a young girl i used
2: Our first show in a bar. We were at this bar in Richmond and we sang an a cappella song. I think it might have been Heap of Horses. And all of a sudden the whole room was quiet. And then we, we got everyone to sit on the floor cross legged to watch our crankies. <laughs> it's a Heap of Horses is a lullaby that Texas Gladden sang. And it's kind of the epitome of a lot of what we're trying to share with our shows, which is this idea that, you know, music having a use, functional music. We don't have work songs anymore, per se, for working on a computer, but lullabies are still there. Go
4: to sleep, go to sleep, you little baby,
2: when you
4: wake, get some cake and ride them pretty little horses, a black and a bay, a sorrel and a gray. A whole heap of little horses.
2: A black and a bay. A sorrel and a gray.
4: A whole heap
2: of little
4: horses.
2: I'd say overall, people, well, especially during crankies, adults turn into children, which is <laughs> to watch from stage. Just all these big eyes looking at this cranky that you're scrolling. That's probably my favorite reaction. I think my favorite is
5: when people come up and they're like, oh, that was great, but I kind of really want to go home right now and make one. Because <laughs> totally. um, I think it brings, I think it brings stories to mind in the minds of other people, which is yeah, perfect.
2: One of the most memorable reactions recently, we were out in Olympia, Washington. And this woman came up to me and her family was from East Kentucky like her grandparents and her parents are all from East Kentucky and they had moved out of the mountains, you know, cause there weren't any jobs and then she moved out to the West coast and she was just kind of really teary and talking to me about how wonderful it was to hear about where her family's from. And, you know, when we started mentioning Kentucky, she said, oh, my daughter looked at me and she was like really proud that she, her family was from Kentucky and there was just something really fulfilling to me about being able to, to like, bridge that for this woman, to help people remember where they're from.
5: You know, wherever we go, it's not that we're trying to get people to love banjos or want to learn to play them, um, because there's awesome heritage around it. We would rather, you know, go somewhere and have it bring up a question in their mind of, oh, what's the heritage or where I am, whether it's through my family or whether it's through where I live or what is what is the history that I can inquire into? What are the stories that are in my life? ¶¶
0: That story was recorded back in 2013 when Anna and Elizabeth were still out performing together. It was produced by WUNC's Laura Chandler. If you enjoy their music, they recorded three albums together, and they're all great. Inside Appalachia, we're hearing from storytellers. Our next guest, Bill Lepp, was called a side-splittingly funny man by the Smithsonian Center for Folklife. Lepp lives in Charleston, West Virginia, and he's one of our region's most famous storytellers. Here he is, back in 2019, telling a story during a mountain stage performance at the West Virginia Culture Center.
1: I grew up in a little tiny town called Half Dollar, West Virginia. We had two streets in Half Dollar. One was called Main Street, and the other one, I'm pretty sure, was called, nah, that ain't Main Street. And we had a Methodist church and then your sort of variety pack of Baptist churches. And uh, our parents told us that there were some Catholics that lived over the hill. But we didn't know if that was true or if that was just something they told us so we'd go to bed at night. But well, one summer, we were having a, a pastor swap. The pastors from the different churches were preaching in each other's churches, and we had the pastor from the Baptist church come and preach at the Methodist church, which was a shock to all of us. Um, and he uh, sort of gave a, a hell and brimstone sermon, and, and he said, uh, he talked about the demons of hell descending down and snatching our souls and dragging them to the sulfuric pits. And we were like, yeah, because we were Methodists. And Methodists don't have demons of hell. We have covered dish dinners. <laughs> and then he followed that up by telling us that, he said, I'll never forget this for a lot of reasons, but he said, when a man does things purely for his own enjoyment and not for the benefit of others or the glory of God, he will be stained and tainted that others may know. I thought, what a great thing. I mean, it didn't really change my life, but it, it stayed with me. Um, And then when I was in college, during summers, I worked at a series of camps, and one of the camps I worked at was a camp called Camp Horseshoe, which is just outside of St. George, which is just outside of Parsons. (laughs) If that clears it up for you. And uh, that summer, this Baptist preacher, he was the camp director that summer. He was an interesting character, same guy, gruff old guy. I say he was old, but now I realize he was probably 35. Uh, (laughs) But he had this wonderful attitude where he really didn't care if you agreed with him because he knew that he was right and that you would either one day come to see things his way or you would go to hell, and he was satisfied with either outcome. So working at this particular camp in this one cabin uh, was myself, my buddy Skeeter, uh, our buddy Wally, and our friend Uncle Debo. Now, Uncle Debo was not our uncle. In fact, Uncle Debo was a year younger than we were, but everybody called the poor kid Uncle Debo because when Uncle Debo was born he was the last and quite unexpected of 17 children. Now when he was born his parents were tired. <laughs> they couldn't think of a name. So they thought we'd we'll just call him the boy until something better comes along and then through the wonders of time and syllabic manipulation the boy became Da Boy which eventually became Debo. And the reason we called him Uncle is because as the last of 17 children, he had nieces and nephews who were quite a bit older than he was. So it wasn't uncommon to be walking down Main Street and hear some matronly niece yell out, Uncle Debo, you pull up your pants right now. Or I'm going to tell Grandma. So... The four of us, myself, Skeeter, Wally and Uncle Debo, we were the counselors in this one cabin, and these were big cabins, probably as wide as this whole stage is. And you walked in, there was a little foyer, and then on either side of the foyer there was a wing, and in each one of those wings there was 25 bunk beds. And if you passed straight through the foyer, there was another little door, and then you entered a room that was about twice the size of a dumpster, but half as clean. And that's where me, Skeeter, Wally, and Uncle Debo lived. And uh, Skeeter, there were two bunk beds, one on each side of the door. And Skeeter slept on the bottom bunk over here. I slept on the top. Wally slept on the bottom bunk over here, Uncle Debo on the top. And then if you passed through that room, there was an exterior door where the four of us could come in and out so that we wouldn't bother the kids. Well, one day, Wally cut his finger. And he cut it bad enough that we had to take him over the mountain to get stitches. And they put him on painkillers. And when we got back to the cabin, we were helping him up through the back door. Okay, we weren't really helping him because he was on painkillers. And the stairs were sort of uneven. And it was fun to watch him try and negotiate those stairs. Well... He fell, and he had just enough sense to know that this hand was damaged, so he reached out with this hand to stop his fall, and these two fingers bent all the way back. I know, it's neat to see. (laughs) Happened to someone else. Because you're like, oh, can the human body do that? And then you're like, no, not successfully. So... We had to take him back over the mountain, and they put him in a splint and on more painkillers. And now it was almost supper, so we did help him up the stairs. And we got Wally in bed, and Uncle Debo Skeeter, and I took the kids to supper, got them in bed, we got in bed, sound asleep. I don't know how long I'd been asleep when I heard Skeeter whispering beneath me, Bill, Bill, wake up, but don't move. Now, I don't know if you've ever been awoken in that fashion. I mean, that is a difficult fashion in which to be awoken, because you know that something bad is about to happen, and so your body fills with adrenaline, and you want to go, wha, but you know if you go, wha, you're going to die. So I brought myself slowly to consciousness, and I said, what's the problem? And Skeeter said, there's a skunk in the cabin. And I looked over the edge of the bed, and sure enough, there was a skunk milling around. And Skeeter said, close the door. And I knew what he meant. We had that door that went into the interior part of the cabin. We left that open at night so that we could hear what noises the children were making that we were going to ignore. (laughs) And Skeeter wanted me to close that door because he knew that if that skunk went out there, it was going to go into one of those wings. One of those hundred children was going to see that skunk scream, and the skunk was going to go off. But I was thinking to myself, out there is 100 14-year-old boys who haven't bathed in a week. How much worse can it smell? I thought we ought to hang that skunk like an air freshener. But then I remembered that we were contractually obligated to look after the goodwill of those children, so I leaned forward, and I shut the door, and it shut with a snick, and it didn't bother the skunk at all. But somewhere in this process, Uncle Debo had awoken. Now, Uncle Debo, I don't want to call the kid stupid, but there's not really a better word for it. I think what happened was it's just that as the last of 17 children, all of his older siblings had already claimed all of the intelligence genes, and there was just nothing left for poor Uncle Debo to work with. He was a country kid, he was a farm kid, but he just didn't have any common sense. And Uncle Debo said, there's a skunk in the cabin, And Skeeter said, yes. And Uncle Debo said, will it bite? Now that's the wrong question. I mean, if a mountain lion comes into your cabin, you don't think, oh, am I going to get a tick? If wolves come in, you don't think, oh, do they stink? And I wanted to thump him, but I knew if I thumped him, the skunk would go off. So Uncle Debo said, will it bite? And Skeeter said, Yes. And Uncle Devo said, how did it get in here? And as if to answer that question, the screen door went, "Eh," and a second skunk came in. So now there were two skunks milling around. And Uncle Devo said, if one of them bites me, will the other? And Skeeter said, yes. He said, they're like hornets. If you make one mad, you make them all mad. And Uncle Devo said, if one of them goes off, will the other? And I was like, what are they the borg? Do they have a collective consciousness? But Skeeter said, yes. And by this time I was laughing. But it was that quiet laugh, that silent laugh, like you do when you're at church or or in school or or at a funeral. And I could feel Skeeter laughing, too. The bed was rocking at about, you know, like a 1.2 on the Richter scale, and there are tears coming out of my eyes and going into my ears. And, and, you know, I was just trying to figure out what to do, trying to get a hold of myself, and finally Skeeter got a hold of himself, and he said to me, as seriously as possible, he said, Bill, did you brush your teeth? And I thought I knew where he was going with this. So I said no. And Uncle Debo said... I brushed my teeth. Why does that matter? And Skeeter said, because skunks are scavengers. They're attracted to scents. They're like bears. And if they smell a scent that they're attracted to, they'll come and investigate. And skunks love toothpaste. (laughs) And Uncle Devo said, well, I'll be okay. I'm on the top bunk. And Skeeter said, why do you think they call skunks pole cats? And Uncle Devo inhaled like he never intended to exhale again. (laughs) Not like he was trying to kill himself, just like he wasn't going to breathe for the next 70 years. He just sort of went... "Ah!" Like that. And by this time, I mean, Skeeter and I were almost laughing out loud. But, I mean, we were going to, yeah, we were taunting. I mean, but there was no way we were getting out of this situation alive. So let our tombstone say they went down taunting. And while that was going on, the screen door went, and a third skunk came in. So now there were three skunks milling around, and Wally, who had been passed out this entire time, Wally was a perfect camp counselor because Wally was one of those weird people, one of those sick people who think it's neat to get up early in the morning and watch the sun rise. I was 26 before I knew the sun rose. All I'd ever seen to do was set. But not only did he like to get up early, he woke up happy, he'd jump out of bed, and go, good morning, and be singing a song about happy trees and little birdies going chirpity-chirp-chirp-chirp. Chirp, chirp. And so in the midst of all of this, Wally awoke, and in his drug-addled state, he thought it was morning. So he said, good morning, and he jumped out of bed. And he landed in the center of a triangle of skunks. And with all the innocence of a drunk, he looked down and he said, "Ah, Kitty cats. (laughs) And he knelt down. And he reached out and he started to scratch one of the skunks behind the ears. And the skunk didn't know what was happening. But it wasn't entirely unpleasant. So the skunk came closer. And Wally picked him up. And he stood up, and he turned to Uncle Debo, and he said, look, Uncle Debo, a kitty cat. And the skunk crawled off of Wally's hands and onto Uncle Debo's chest. And Uncle Debo sat up, and he screamed, and the skunk bit him. And then all three skunks just went off. (laughs) And Skeeter and I were laying there, coughing, choking, laughing. And we heard a voice from off in the ether that said, boys, 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 when a man does things purely for his own enjoyment, And not for the benefit of others or the glory of God, he will be stained (laughs) and tainted that others may know. Thank you very much.
0: That was storyteller Bill Lepp, a five-time champion at the West Virginia Liars contest. He told his story to a live audience back in 2019 as part of a mountain stage performance. We'll hear from Bill Up again in next week's episode, reading his new children's book, *The Princess and the Pickup Truck*. We're dedicating our entire show next week to children's authors, including one of my all-time favorites, Cynthia Ryland, who's written more than a hundred books, including two about her experiences growing up in West Virginia that won Caldecott honors. Make sure you tune in to check out that episode. After the break, we'll travel to the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee. More stories and more laughs coming up after the break. You're listening to Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
1: One day I aim to have myself a family in a cabin on the hill then I might have to come over the highway to help with the family and bills in the kids have got a little
0: Next, we'll hear from a professional storyteller who lives in Burke County, North Carolina. His name is Michael Reno Harrell. And like most of us, he hasn't had the chance to see anyone in his extended family over the past year. So when we asked him which story he wanted us to play, he chose this one. About his mom and her sister-in-law, his Aunt Eloise. It's called Sweet Tea and Red Wine.
3: My mother, my mother, Aretha Cole Harrell, uh, was one of seven children. And they were all boys except six. <laughs> my mother, like I say, was one of seven children. She was the youngest. And uh, she had just one brother, my uncle Roy, and it, it was great. We were just the tightest family. We just had a reunion. Well, we call it a reunion. It's just to get together up at uh, my oldest surviving. There were 15 first cousins. We had a meeting this past Saturday over at my cousin, Nancy's house. And, uh, uh, the reason we did was because, uh, the last of that generation had passed away. My aunt Elvita, my mother's next oldest sister had passed away this, this year. And she had sort of inherited everyone's photographs. And we spent, uh, one of the most amazing afternoons, uh, going through about a third of those photographs and, you know, who do you think this is? I have no idea, but it looks, you know. So you just you know, back then they knew who it was. They didn't write anybody's name on the back, you know, so we were going through it going, well, it looks a little like no, I don't know. I recognize that dog though. That's yeah, that, you know. It was a wonderful afternoon and, and my wife, Joan, made a cobbler and I and we, you know, my cousin smoked a big Boston butt and we we just had a wonderful time going through things uh, in that generation, you know, that was, that was the world war two generation. That was the great depression generation. Uh, my dad was, uh, right at eight years old living in a cotton mill and village in South Carolina when the whole world stopped, the, you know, the stock market crashed in the great depression and about the time they got through that and got of age, you know, to try to start their own lives. Guess what happens? You know, World War II breaks out, and then they went through four years of that, and then, you know, on and on and on. So, I mean, when they say that was the greatest generation, I can't think of a greater one. I mean, anybody that could go through that and keep their sanity, you know, and come out on the other end, it's no wonder they wouldn't throw anything away, you know, I mean, (laughs) they'd worked hard to get everything they had. And uh, I tell that story about my brothers and our wives cleaning out my mother's house, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. thank you. but but you know, it makes sense they didn't throw things away. Well, we uh, once that generation started to fade out, you know, and we were coming of age, the cousins sort of spanned a pretty good uh, uh, length of time there in our ages. But once we realized that those people were going away, and one of these days that I'll be gone, that we needed to start paying more attention to them, and by that I mean we needed to go sit with them and 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 ask that question: How was it? When you know, when people's stories are gone, they're gone. The only way that they stay around is for us to tell their stories. And so, once we realized that these we were you know we were losing that generation, we decided we need to celebrate every one of them. So when their birthday would come around, we would just, anybody that could would get to their house, bring cakes, presents, and we would have a birthday party for them. Every year we would celebrate one more year of them being here with us. Well, about, oh, been three years ago now, I guess there were two of them left. My Aunt Elvita and my Uncle Roy's widow, my Aunt Eloise. And uh, they had both had great lives. I'll tell you that they, uh, Elvita had invested well, and uh, she was a widow, had been for many years, and she was living down in Greer, South Carolina, in a really nice retirement village. And uh, and uh, her son lives. Uh, my cousin Bob lives down there, so she had moved down there to be close to him. And so when we would have her birthday party, we'd go down there, and the staff would give us, like, a banquet room, and, you know, and we would have, like, you know, things imported from places to eat. It was wonderful. We just had a wonderful time, and, and uh, we would tell stories and share pictures and all those things. Now, uh, <coughs> Eloise it was kind of a different, whole different story, but they had a wonderful life also. Now, she married my mother's only brother, my Uncle Roy to see him together, he was, uh, Uncle Roy was kind of, uh, if he'd have been three inches taller, he'd have been a circle. <laughs> <laughs> My aunt Elwes was a good cook, I'll tell you that. And uh, squ- he ate a lot of squirrel gravy, I'll tell you. But, but a wonderful guy. He was, he was, uh, He took after my mother's dad, uh, the grandfather that that I never knew. He took after his dad, uh, my granddaddy's name was Motorcycle Eddie Cole. Uh, I think it was on his birth certificate. He was, he fixed it. He could fix anything that moved is what Stover used to tell me. He said, son, if it, if it moves, he can fix it. And he, he kept the Candler sawmill running. He kept people's, you know, sewing machines together and coffee grinders and all that he he was also the best shot in buncombe county by everybody's account with a rifle they got to where they wouldn't let him even compete in turkey shoots you know it was just such a great shot and roy took after that roy was a just the crack rifle shot and a pistol shot and uh, so when world war ii came out he went down and volunteered because he knew that he could do something when it came to that war effort he knew he could contribute he was stationed initially in uh, in Columbia, South Carolina, and he got down there and they got on the rifle range and, uh, you know, they counted his shots and they said, well, you didn't, you missed the target about 12 times. He said, no, I didn't. He said, well, where's the holes? And he said, look right there. And, and of course he'd shot through the same hole 12 times or something, you know, that kind of stuff. He was just amazing. So instead of sending him to Germany or to Europe or or the Pacific, they said, you need to teach other people how to do this. So he spent World War II in Columbia, South Carolina. (laughs) And when he came back to the mountains of Western North Carolina and and talked to his wife, he said, honey, we ain't going anywhere because it's too hot everywhere but here. I guess he figured the whole world was like Columbia, South Carolina. So they didn't go anywhere, and that was okay. They, you know, they raised their family there, my my two female cousins and their son. And uh, they came, I think, to see us in Morristown twice, and that's four counties right there. It takes four counties to get from Buncombe County to Hamlin County. I think that was the most counties that Eloise had ever been in. She'd never been anywhere. She grew up in those mountains, and... uh, But she read she read every book i think like my mom every book in the asheville library and especially if it had anything to do with other places she could name you any state capital like that and then any capital in europe you know she knew more about uh geography and and traveling than than people that had been to those places well they uh, raised their kids and and had a good life and then when they were 58 Uncle Roy passed away and left her a widow. Well, she mourned my uncle and, and went on with her life, and, and uh, she was the secretary of the Liberty Hill Baptist Church on Monta Vista Road there in Buncombe County. And uh, one of her jobs was to greet, you know, visitors that came into the Sunday school and give them one of those little stick-on name tags, you know, so people would say, oh, visitor, and I, well, your name is uh, Bob. Oh, well, hi, Bob. Thank you for coming, you know. That kind of deal, and then her other job was to count the collection that they took up in the Sunday school, and then write it down in the book, and you know, make sure it was deposited and all that. And then they would put, you know, the offering at Sunday school offering on the little slide-in sign out in the in the in the church. Anyway, so one Sunday, Roy had been dead about three years, and one Sunday, this fella came in about her age and uh, somebody had directed him to her little desk there in the hallway to get his name tag and he walked up and uh, and said his name was charles and uh, she said well hi and told him her name eloise and he said that's a beautiful name and she said well thank you and she filled out his card charles and put it on him he went on to the men's class and then uh, between sunday school and church he came back to her desk and she said, "Well, hi, Charles. Uh, is there something else I could help you with?" And he said, "Reckon I could ask you a question." And she said, "Well, sure. That's what I'm here for. What could I do, what could I do for you?" He said, "Well, it's kind of personal." And she said, "Well, well, what? It, I don't know. What is it?" He said, "Do you ever eat?" <laughs> now, I, I, she was taken aback by that, and the reason is. She was about that big around. She was about as big around as a grapefruit. I ain't kidding you, she was just... She said, I've, she said, I've eaten everything I could get my hands on my whole life and I can never gain a pound. She said, I was, a, I was the skinny kid at school. She said, we'd be out on the playground and a big cloud would come over the mountain and somebody would yell, hey, Eloise, run under the clothesline, it's fixing the rain, you know. <laughs> so... So when this fella Charles said, do you ever eat? She was like, well, yes, I eat all the time, you know? And he said, well, he said, what I meant was, was you fix, was you thinking, uh, did you, uh, you uh, were you planning on eating today? <laughs> and she said, well, yes, why? And he said, well, I'd like to buy you something other to eat. And she said, well, okay. And he said, well, Where do you like to eat? And she said, well, I like J&S Cafeteria. And he said, I do, too. And it was like a mile and a half down there at J&S Cafeteria at the intersection. So they walked in there together, and he put her in front of in the line, and they went through the line. And then when they got up there, he got her a tray, and then he got her that little wrapped silverware and put it on her tray. He said, now, anything you want is on me. He said, and that means dessert, too. (laughs) So they went through the line and they got down there to their table and they sat down and they started chatting you know and talking about their lives and and he had been in the war and talked about where all he had been in europe she said you know i've always dreamed of going to those places well it got to be a regular thing every sunday you know he'd come up between sunday and church say were you going to eat again today and she'd say yeah i thought i would he said How about J and S and she'd say, I love it. And they'd go to J and S every Sunday. Well, this went on for a good while. And then one day, Sunday school, he came up. He said, he said, hey, and she said, hey. He said, Will you marry me? Uh And she said, I believe I will. (laughs) (laughs) And so they went to the J and S and celebrated. And they got married three months later there in the Liberty Baptist Church, Liberty Hill Baptist Church. They got married in the church. And f- for their honeymoon, he had bought a brand new Winnebago motorhome. And before it was over, not their honeymoon, but before it was all over, they had been to all 50 states, 15 foreign countries, and she had spent more time in the Holy Land than Jesus and then when they were they were the same age just like she and Roy had been when they were 86 Charles went on to his reward and left her a widow again and Eloise said that's it I've been everywhere I ever wanted to go I'm not going anywhere again and by that she meant she wasn't going to Ingalls to buy groceries She said, I'm staying home till I go home that last time. So, now remember, we had all get together for the birthday party. So, when we would have now, we were getting ready to have Elvita's birthday party down there at her house. And, of course, everybody came, all the other remaining aunts and uncles. Well, guess what? Now, Eloise ain't going to go down there anymore. So... We're like, well, we'll have to hog tie her to get her in the car to get her down there, you know. But once she was there, she's gonna love everything about it. And then I had the best idea I think I've ever had, other than marrying that woman that I'm married to. Uh, there she is, right there. That's my wife, Joan Harrell. Y'all say hey <laughs> to her. at our house we refer to her as management (laughs) she's the one that does all the hard work she does all the booking and the tour management and suitcase packing i just do this it's pretty pretty good but anyway i had the best idea i'd had up to that moment i think and that was why don't we just get Elvita and bring her up here to eloise's house because Elvita was in a wheelchair by then but she loved to travel so bob could just bring her up there and everybody said why didn't we all think of this before then mama won't have to as she put it leave her property (laughs) i don't like to leave my property so about three years ago we were getting ready to have uh we were getting ready to have uh party up at eloise's house up there in buncombe county so everybody had made plans, and Joan was up at her sister's house up in uh, New England. Now, her sister, uh, her sister married a fella from Boston. The girls are from North Carolina, but uh, <laughs> she married a guy from Boston. Sounds <laughs> odd, don't it? But th- sometimes they'll crossbreed like that. Anyway. <laughs> uh, Joan was up visiting Teresa up there, so it was up to me to represent our little piece of the family at the big birthday party. So I thought, well, what could I do to help out? And I thought, well, it's hard to park that many cars, you know, because of all the trees. And so I thought, well, I'll get up there and park cars. I'll get people and we'll get them in here so nobody hits a tree and all that. So I'll get up there before anybody else gets up there. So I got up to Eloise's house. Now her daughter, Joanne lives right next door on the right side there, lives right next door to her. And uh, so I got there and, and walked around to the back door, of the kitchen door, that's where everybody, family comes and goes, you know. So I stuck my head in the kitchen door and there's my two cousins, uh, Eloise's daughters, Jane and Joanne. And they're in the kitchen and they got flour up to their elbows they're making cakes and and gouging melon balls and all that stuff you know and arranging flowers and they're hard at it and so i said you know what any self-respecting man would say in that situation i said hey girls anything i can say to help And my cousin Joanne looked around at me and said, Yeah, get in there and entertain Mama while we get this going. I said, All right. So I walked in the living room, and and there she was, my, my little my little darling Eloise sitting there. Now, remember, I said she wasn't big around as a soda straw hardly. and uh, And now she'd shrunk this way. She looked like Yoda by then. <laughs> so... I kind of snuck up behind her. She's sitting in her little chair with her feet on a little footstool, staring at something that I couldn't see. You know, kind of like a cat, you know? There's something there that she's seeing, but I'm not sure where it is or what it is. Anyway, so I just kind of snuck around her and give her a little peck on the cheek there, you know? And she looked up and saw me and she went, oh, I am so glad to see you. Who are you? And I said, well, Andy, it's me, it's Michael. And she said, well, what are you doing? And I said, we're having a birthday party. She said, oh my God, am I 98? I said, no, honey, no, you're still 97. I said, "Uh, we're having a birthday party for, for Elvita here at your house. And she said, well, this isn't my house. I said, this isn't your house. She said, no, honey. She pointed off to the left and said, I live way over there. And I thought, well, for 97, she wasn't but one house off. You know? (laughs) Not bad, you know? And uh, so I just got around in front of her and squatted down where we could make eye contact. And I was looking at her, and I said, you know something? She said, what? I said, you look marvelous. She said, I do? I said, yes, you do. You look great. She said, well, I feel pretty good. I said, have you been doing what your doctor told you? Have you been exercising like he told you? She said, yes, I do. I walk every day. I said, walk. That's what I do. That's the very same thing I do. I said, I love to get out and walk. That's what I do every day. When I'm on the road, I get out and walk. I said, have have you walked yet today? And she said, I don't know. (laughs) I said, well, do you feel like walking? She said, well, yeah. I said, well, come on, let's go for a walk. She said, all right. And I just left her cane there on her chair, you know, and got her up and got her on my arm. And we went across the living room and out the front door and out on the front porch and down two steps. There we were on the sidewalk, you know. And I said, all right, here we are outside. I said, where you want to go? She said, well, I'm not leaving my property. <laughs> I said, well, darling, we don't have to leave your property. We got plenty of room here a walk. I said, now, where do you normally walk when you walk? She said, "Well, I normally go down there at the mailbox and back, and her mailbox is about as far as from here to the courthouse steps down there." I said, "Well, come on, we're going to the mailbox," and I got her by the arm, and we took off down there to the end of her driveway, and about a half hour later, we got down there, <laughs> and had a lovely chat about things I do not have any idea of what about on the way down there. But anyway, it was wonderful pretty day and we got down there and said all right darling here we are at the mailbox where are we going now she said well before we go back to the house look in the paper box and see if the Asheville citizen times has come yet and so i looked in the paper box and there wasn't any paper in there and i said well no honey i said the paper's not in here she said it ain't it isn't in there i said no she said well doggone i guess i've already read it i said well well, what do you want to do now then? And she said, well, let's go back to the house and read the paper again. It'll be news to me all over.
0: (laughs) Michael Reno-Harrell is a storyteller in Burke County, North Carolina. His mother's family, including his Aunt Eloise, spent most of their life in Buncombe County, just outside Asheville. He performed that story at the International Storytelling Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee, back in 2017. He also wrote this song about his aunt Eloise. She uses her
3: clothesline, likes poetry that rhymes, and old radios. She's got chip paint, and old pipes, and a burned-out front porch light, and a tin roof that just might fall in when it snows. Well, she quits cigarettes, but still plays her cassettes. And now and then forgets her blood pressure pill. She keeps the shells from cicadas and bakes sweet potatoes. Got two green tomatoes on her windowsill. Gets up with the sun to make breakfast for one well, there's an old
0: car on We're working on another episode of Inside Appalachia about storytellers. Do you have a storyteller in your community who you love? Tell us about them. Write to us at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Or you can find us at West Virginia Public Broadcasting on Facebook. Or at WV Public on Instagram. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia.
3: Well,
4: I used to ride a Mustang, and I'd run that thing on high hose. There is the price of dreams so high I couldn't pay. So I let that car just sit there when I
1: should have took you driving with the windows down while the music played.
0: So you say, I wouldn't act so angry
4: all time. I wouldn't keep it all inside and I'd let you know how much I love you. Every
0: day. We're working on another episode of Inside Appalachia about storytellers. Do you have a storyteller in your community who you love? Tell us about them. Write to us at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Or you can find us at West Virginia Public Broadcasting on Facebook or at WVPublic on Instagram. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Tyler Childers, as heard on Mountain Stage. Dinosaur Verbs, Michael Reno-Harrell, and Anna and Elizabeth. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia Newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.